You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1927th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 4th of May 2023. The editor of this edition is Sue Aitchison, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Sue Harrington-Spear and Harvey Johnson. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. So we're now going to start with some headlines. Murder case father and son jailed for life. Barry Mayer to pay £100 victim compensation after caution. Can it get any worse? Call for action over potholed roads. Plan for 171 homes is approved for former gasworks. A father and son convicted of murdering a suspected thief and a vigilante-style killing have been sentenced to life imprisonment. David King, 56, and son Edward, 20, of Radnor, Closebury, St Edmunds, were sentenced at Ipswich Crown Court on Monday. David King will serve a minimum of 21 years and Edward King a minimum of 19. Judge Martin Levitt said the sentences reflected the tragic impact knife crime had on families and communities. The hearing followed a 10-week trial last year at which a jury unanimously found the pair guilty of murdering 47-year-old Neil Child on June 20, 2021. During sentencing, the defendants showed no emotion. Judge Levitt said that after considering 56 days of evidence, he was sure that the father and son had gone out to find Neil Charles and at least inflict serious bodily harm. He also referenced text messages David King had sent in a WhatsApp message which highlighted vigilante Paul Kersey from the 1974 movie Death Wish saying this was what the estate needed. Edward King had also sent messages expressing his desire for revenge against car thieves. It followed a series of car thefts and thefts from cars on the Morton Hall estates since 2019. David King, who worked for construction firm Morgan Sindel, and Tesco worker Edward King, were arrested the morning of the incident in June. Ipswich Crown Court heard they had been alerted to an attempted break-in by their own CCTV in the early hours of the morning. The pair armed themselves and went out to investigate, without calling police. David King carried a Fairburn Sykes fighting knife, while Edward a 27-inch samurai sword. Prosecuting barrister Richard Kelly said that both men had amassed a collection of weapons and had gone out plainly looking for Mr Charles. They used the weapons to attack Charles, also from Bury St Edmunds, who'd been trying car and house door handles on the estate. Mr Charles had previous convictions for theft and burglary. David King used his fighting knife to inflict a fatal 12-centimetre stab wound to Mr Charles's chest. He also suffered a wound above his knee from the sword carried by Edward King. Charles collapsed and staggered from door to door trying to find help. At around 3.55am, David King called police and told them a man had been trying to steal from his car. He admitted he had been carrying a knife. Mayor of Bury St Edmunds, Peter Thompson, 
has agreed to pay £100 in victim compensation in connection with an incident in which he received a police caution. Mr Thompson, a sitting Conservative councillor at Suffolk County Council, has been suspended by his party pending an investigation following the incident in the town in early March. CCTV footage seen by the East Anglian Daily Times showed the incident which involved two men and head doorman Matthew Tate, 31, inside the gym sports bar. Mr Tate is a Royal Anglian veteran who was medically discharged due to injuries he received during his second tour of Afghanistan. The matter was investigated by Suffolk Police, who said, We can confirm that two men have received conditional cautions following an incident at the gym bar in Bury in March. Mr Tate was not cautioned. The Bury St Edmunds Mayor has agreed to pay £100 in compensation, attend an alcohol awareness course, and accepted a ban on ent attending the gym sports bar. Mr Thompson is seeking re-election to West Suffolk Council and Bury St Edmunds Town Council at next week's local elections. Matthew Hicks, leader of the Conservative Group on Suffolk County Council, <laughs> said, I can confirm that Councillor Peter Thompson has been suspended from the Conservative Group on Suffolk County Council following an alleged breach of the group rules. John Griffiths, leader of West Suffolk Council's Conservative Group, said, I can confirm that he has been suspended for breaching group rules pending further investigation. John Davy Thornhill, <coughs> chairman of the Bury St Edmunds Constituency Conservative Association, said, I can confirm that Peter Thompson has been suspended from Bury St Edmunds Constituency Conservative Association following an alleged breach of party rules. The East Anglian Daily Times has attempted to contact Mr Thompson for comment, but he could not be reached. The State of the Roads has promoted calls for an urgent and transparent review of the highways and infrastructure maintenance system across Suffolk. Adrian Graves of Great Barton near Bury St Edmunds came to the aid of a traveller whose car was written off due to potholes in the village on Good Friday. But, his village aside, West Suffolk was littered with dangerous potholes and damaged vehicles, he said. Mr Graves, who ran his own consulting practice for more than 40 years, specialising in areas including transport and infrastructure, is urging Suffolk County Council, the SCC, to commission a proper audit of how it procures, manages and delivers its highways and infrastructure maintenance. A spokesperson for SCC, which runs Suffolk Highways, said since the beginning of the year more than 6,000 potholes had been repaired, which was over a 1,000 more than the same period last year, and they were working hard to reduce the number of potholes and other defects across Suffolk as quickly as they could. They had increased their number of pothole repair teams, and in an aim to deliver more repairs, they were adopting their methods in certain locations to repair defects quicker whilst maintaining quality, the spokesperson added. Drivers at vehicle recovery firm DJ Recovery, based near Stonham Aspel, but covering East Anglia, described the roads as shocking. Mr Graves said that there's obviously a fundamental problem with the way highways issues are reported and then actioned, so I'm calling for Suffolk County Council to commission an urgent and transparent audit of the whole highways and infrastructure maintenance system across the county. When asked about the current state of the roads, former Great Barton Parish Councillor Philip Reeve said, can it get any worse? And added, 
I think in terms of the severity of the holes, I think it's definitely the worst period I have seen. It's the brinkmanship people in Suffolk highways are willing to run and it's people's safety, he said. He said the scope of works, the area in an agreement where the work to be formed is described between Suffolk highways and the outgoing contractor here, seemed to be questionable, but he hoped the situation would improve when new contractor Milestone starts this October. Mr Graves also welcomed Milestone coming on board after Keir had the contract for Suffolk Highway services for 10 years. A SCC spokesman said their highways teams were out daily undertaking inspections to identify defects that require repairing. Plans for more than 170 apartments on long empty Bury St Edmunds land, initially earmarked for a food retail and a pub, have been approved despite concerns. Western Homes has been given the green light from West Suffolk Council for six apartment blocks for 171 homes, a retail unit on the ground floor of one of the blocks, and public space with pedestrian and cycle routes at the former gasworks site in Tafen Road. The land is next to the firm's Tayfields development of 215 homes, and outline permission has been granted for a care home on land immediately next to the site. Berries and Edmunds Town Council had recommended refusal due to insufficient play areas and provision for children, and said the plan did not meet West Suffolk Council's requirements to intersperse affordable housing throughout the development. The plans include 31 affordable homes, 7 rented, 18 shared ownership and 6 discount market sale. Following a consultation, three responses raised concerns over the height of the buildings. The 138 parking spaces planned was not enough for 171 homes and a two-can crossing was needed for Tafen Road. The Tafen Road master plan envisaged a food retail shop and family pub for the land, which has been empty since removal of a gas holder in 2015. However, a retail study from West Suffolk Council said there was no identified demand for a food store, though companies are known to be looking for an extra site in the town. In an officer report, West Suffolk Council's economic development team said that while it was regrettable there was no provision for a food retail store as initially planned, the scheme made a positive contribution to the area with the commercial unit, new links to the railway station and views into and out of the site. The Berry Society said it was in general support of the development, but was concerned it should not repeat the impact of the monolithic block at the Lantern Apartment block in Tafen Road. It said, It is reassured that the building heights and alternating elevations will help to avoid this and to create a new and attractive street scene along Tafen Road. A company which provides eco-friendly dog stations across West Suffolk wants to continue to tackle the issue of dog fouling in the Bury St Edmunds area. Since 2017, West Suffolk Council has had a successful partnership with Eco Green Communities and there are currently 19 stations where, which dispense compostable dog waste bags. A total of 525,000 bags have been dispensed from stations in West Suffolk, including those on Hardwick Heath and the Ram Meadow Car Park in Bury St Edmunds. Others can be found on Narton Road and Home Farm Lane. 
council spokesman said, there's never an excuse for dog walkers not bagging and binning dog mess. Most dog walkers, walkers are responsible and do the right thing, and where there is an issue, we can work with communities to try and educate and encourage people to pick up after their dog. Eco-green communities approached us with the idea of for these bag dispensers, which provide additional support to responsible dog walkers. They have been really popular, and eco-green communities is the process of restocking these and seeking community sponsorship for the various locations. Andrew Harvey, Enforcement and Education Manager for Operations at the Council, said, We've had a lot of requests for more stations to be installed by members of the public, local parishes and members of the Department for Parks. He continued, The eco stations provide a handy service to dog walkers caught without a bag and remove the excuse of leaving dog mess because of not having a bag. Julie Cook, Director of Eco Green Communities, said, by erecting these stations, councils are helping to reduce dog fouling, which is a perennial pro problem for many local authorities. Numerous studies show that people are more likely to drop litter in areas where there are already high volumes of rubbish. So where litter levels are low, people are more likely to dispose of all types of waste responsibility. A total of 75 unsafe hairdryers have been seized after one caught fire during testing. Suffolk Trading Standards detained the consignment at the Port of Felixstowe on the Suffolk coast. When carrying out a restricted airflow test on one of the items, it caught fire within 30 seconds. Suffolk Trading Standards said the product failed to meet the requirements of the Electrical Equipment Safety Regulations 2016 as it posed an electrical shock and fire hazard. It comes just two weeks after hundreds of unsafe items sold on eBay were seized at the port. The hairdryers were not fitted with an over-temperature device to protect from electric shock and fire, and the mains plugs were fitted with counterfeit fuses. Following this, all 75 hairdryers were seized. Suffolk Trading Standards is advising anyone who has purchased a product that they think may be unsafe to stop using it immediately. Mm -hmm. And now some news from Stowmarket. A new cafe offering authentic Italian cuisine is gearing up to open while reassuring residents that the town's business sector is not yet finished. Viga Napoletana Pizzeria in Stowmarket will be opening its second business venture, Passione d'Amore, in the old Fox Yard as part of the Stowmarket Design Quarter. Husband and wife owners Tom and Sylvia Polnisiak are aiming to open the cafe in early June, as long as the renovation of Pickwick's runs smoothly. Sylvia is keen to open the new shop as she believes the people of Stowmarket will continue to show the family-run business support despite recent closures in the town, including Prezzo and Little Pig Bakery. She said, We count on the support of local people who are sad that many businesses closed down in our town recently, so hopefully we can bring you hope that our town is not finished yet. A new repair cafe is coming to Bury St Edmunds, thanks to one man and his band of volunteers. Mark Wharton, a semi-retired software engineer, has launched the repair cafe with the help of the volunteers who have a wide range of repair skills and all share a problem-solving mindset. The pop-up cafe will be a free meeting place where people can go to get things fixed, be it anything from bikes to electronics, garden tools, furniture, clothing 
electrical equipment to toys. All they have to do is make a donation to help cover costs, if they wish. People can book us a slot, bring their item along and see if we can fix it, said Mr Wharton, who lives in Chevington. But rather than just watch, we also encourage people to get involved themselves, so they learn new skills along the way. Repair Café is worldwide charity, which originated in Holland in 2009. The motto of the charity is, Bin it, no way. Mr Wharton says he has spent his life investigating how things work. He went on to found a pioneering high-tech company. My favourite book when I was young was How Things Work, he said. After that, I spent most of my life taking things apart and putting them back together. I first had the idea to start a cafe a few years ago and then volunteered for a couple of other repair cafes during lockdown, which was great. The Berries and Edmonds Repair Cafe now has 15 volunteers. These include repairers, as well as catering staff for refreshments, and admin. The Facebook group has 70 members. The Repair Cafe will be held at the Unitarian Meeting House in Churchgate Street on July the 8th. Mr Wharton hopes to hold the cafes every two months. A very St Edmunds entertainment and arts venue has closed indefinitely. The doors to the Market Cross are now locked, while a notice on its website says, closed as of Monday, April the 23rd, 2023. The venue reopened in May 2021 with James Stringer of Phoenix Pilates and Dance Limited at the helm. He said in a statement, the centre has provided an outlet for many artists, performing arts, art exhibitions, charity events, fitness and dance classes, art classes, craft classes, crafts market and so on. There's also been a daily food cafe, coffee shop and bar where book and language clubs, children's and parents' playtime sessions and the community at large have enjoyed the space on a weekly basis. The vision for this arts centre was to one day see the entire market cross, including the ground floor, be used as an outlet for artists, makers, performing artists, etc. A community-driven town centre arts and entertainment venue a shop for local makers to display and sell crafts, a space for creatives to perform and a space for art and well-being classes to become regular activities. The current venture could continue, but it would require several partners to join forces and continue to develop the Arts Centre. He said he'd been unable to locate partners who shared his vision, therefore closure or takeover the only options now available. Prior to opening in May 2021, the Grade 1 listed building had been empty for six years. The Market Cross was built in the 17th century, and in 1725, the first floor became Bury's first permanent theatre. A long-empty school site in Bury St Edmunds could be transformed into houses and apartments. The St Edmundsbury and Ipswich Diocesan Board and M&D Limited have submitted plans for the former St James's Church of England Middle School in the Vinefields to develop 22 properties. A planning document to West Suffolk Council said nine houses would be built in two groups, a terrace of three, which are two-storey, and three-bedroom properties, and a terrace of six. These would all be two-storey except for one three-storey property with five three-bedroom and one four-bedroom. Parts of the school, which closed in 2016 in the final phase of middle school closures, would be demolished. Existing buildings would be developed 
to form a four-bedroom property and a three-bedroom property as well as 11 apartments. St James's opened in 1972 and, when closed, it was the last Church of England voluntarily aided middle school in Suffolk. It was used for a few months in 2016 by Sybil Andrews Academy when it began its first academ academic year. A for former clothes store in Bury St Edmunds could be divided into two shops. Plans have been submitted to build a new shop front for Unit 2 at the Ark Shopping Centre in Bury, which was the former top shop top man. A letter to West Suffolk Council said the works were required as part of the subdivision of the unit in Auction Street into two. The car wash office at Bury St Edmunds Railway Station is to be removed and replaced with a covered cycle storage space. Greater Anglia has been granted permission by West Suffolk Council to demolish the timber single-storey building at the back of the station and to repair the wall of the Grade 2 listed building. The car wash will remain in operation at the site, but a new covered cycle storage facility for 52 bikes will be built in place of the former office. Other repair works given the go-ahead include waterproofing works at Platforms 1 and 2. The plans follow recent concourse works and a new passenger entrance at the back of the station originally built in 1847. Repairs are also to be made to the roof of an empty building at Platform 1 as water is leaking into the rooms below. A temporary scaffold tower would be built as the area cannot be accessed from the trackside. But no mention of a cafeteria, Shame. even a bar. <laughs> we can't expect too much, Sue. But, but I do. I live in hope. Anyway, <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> there's a big event this weekend. With most of us, while most of us will watch next weekend's coronation on television or listen on the radio, one Hengrave couple will experience the London atmosphere after securing tickets to the event. Jill Turner, 74, will be at the heart of the action in the event bandstand after her name was pulled out of a charity lottery for the precious ticket. The invitation came about as a result of Jill's long-standing involvement with the Bury St Edmunds and West Suffolk branch of the Samaritans, having chalked up more than 30 years as a volunteer. She was asked if she wanted to put her name in the hat to win an invitation to the historic event and jumped at the chance. This week, Jill and her husband Ian, who is her guest for the event, said they were awaiting more information as they knew little more than they would be attending. Now, my name went into a lottery along with names from across more than 200 Samaritan branches nationally. The charity as a whole was given 20 tickets. Some charities that are in close contact with the royal family received invitations. I think I was chosen to go in the ballot for being the longest-serving member uh, volunteer in the branch, said Jill. As far as I know, a stage will be going up outside the palace, near the Victoria Memorial, and I think the bandstand is around there. We should have a view of the procession and hopefully also see the family on the balcony. We are absolutely thrilled. It is going to be very exciting, although it will be a long day. We are waiting for the final instructions, but I'm sure we will have to be there early to get checked. You never know what will transpire from the things that you do. Jill said she was still fully involved with the Samaritans. There are so many people involved with so many aspects of the branch and we are all volunteers. The only person who gets paid is the cleaner, she added. King Charles III's coronation will take place next Saturday at Westminster Abbey, London. 
During the ceremony, the king will be crowned alongside Camilla, the queen consort. The monarch has invited hundreds of people in recognition of their charitable contributions. A Suffolk window designer and painter has put the finishing touches to a special coronation display. Sophie Ban has perfected the design in the window of Lipsticks and Locks Bar and Hair Salon on Abbeygate Street in Bury St Edmunds. The 25-year-old, who is based in Long Melford, has been designing for around two years and says it is an accident that she fell into window displays. Ms Mann said, I've always been very artistic and it was a way to use artistic flair. I started by doing one window and posted about it on Instagram. I now design things all over East Anglia. I'm painting displays in all of the lipsticks and locks salons. Many people stopped and asked me questions about the coronation display. The young businesswoman is the founder of Sophie April Mann Textiles Design, designing homeware, cards and other textiles for sale online. She was named the National Market Trader Federation's Young Trader of the Year for 2022. Families, photographers and train spotters had a treat last Sunday when a restored steam train made a whistle-stop trip through Suffolk. The Great Britain 15, a touring train, passed through Bury St Edmunds and Thurston on April the 23rd, heading to Felixstowe. James Hart, who lives in Bury St Edmunds, said it was exciting to hear the nostalgic puffing of the steam engine slowly getting louder. Bury and Edmunds Care Home has been recognised for its dementia-friendly garden by reaching the final of a national award. Care UK's Glastonbury Court on Glastonbury Road has been shortlisted for the Best for Indoor, Outdoor, Communal Spaces category in the Care Home Awards 2023. This outdoor space was named second best in the region in the prestigious flower competition Anglia in Bloom. The home has also been awarded the local Berry and Bloom Gold Award for the second year in a row. The care home team said that residents play an essential part in the success of the garden, which brings them so much joy. Trudy Jennings, the home's lifestyle lead, added, As a full dementia home, it is amazing to see the difference in residents when they go outside and interact with the garden. A lot of residents here can't talk, but you can see their faces light up when they're outside, whether they're outside with their family or just looking at or touching the flowers. Glastonbury Court is rated outstanding by the Care Quality Commission. And now we have some letters, and the first one is from Dick Kirby of Greatwell Neatham, and he writes, It's neglect causing these problems. When I moved to the Bury St Edmunds area over 20 years ago, it seemed to be the perfect place to live not any longer. Drains so neglected over that period that it took a hundred tonnes of silt to be removed in order that the lightest shower of rain did not cause major flooding, potholes in such numbers that the roads appear to have been machine gunned and the latest three power cuts in as many weeks. On Tuesday, April the 18th, a seven-hour power outrage outage, I beg your pardon, resulted in 1,589 properties in the IP30 and IP29 districts being without electricity. As the hours went by, each estimated time of reconnection lengthened, and when it appeared that it was unlikely to establish when reconnection would occur, 
I was one of a number of people who had to drive into Bury to purchase a cold collation for dinner that evening. In the meantime, food spoiled in the fridge and the freezer. This was unplanned, whimpered the representatives of UK PowerNet, but it was preventable. As usual, the fault was as the result of tree branches falling on overhead cables. It seems that this is caused by the slightest puff of wind, and as usual, the fault occurred in the spinney which abuts the western border of the fields at Fenton's farm. It would therefore make sense for that area to be regularly inspected and for any tree branches which pose a threat to be lopped off. But no. UK PowerNet are content to wait until such an incident occurs, and then, as I could see from my bedroom window, the area was crowded with trucks, cars, vans, and men in hard hats wandering about trying to make sense of matters. It simply does not make economic sense. The police used to have a humorous ditty for such an occasion. When in trouble, when in doubt, form a squad and jump about. It appears that UK PowerNet has taken that homily on board. And the next letter is from Peter Critchley of Pakenham. As is headed here, ironic view of Tories' successful policies. I feel sorry for the Conservative government, I really do. They are trying their level best to ruin the NHS and the care home system, and the public are trying to stop them. How unfair is this? The government has delivered Brexit resulting in long queues at Dover and higher food prices, and think of all that money they promised us would be going into the NHS as a result of leaving the EU. Well, that money has gone, gone somewhere, but as long as it has gone to some Conservative donor, that should be welcome news. They've also done their very best to reduce the number of NHS dentists, and a good thing too. Why people are grumbling about this, I don't know. Private dental care is much more reliable than NHS treatments. They've also been successful in making sure you can't see a doctor within a two- or three-week period. And quite right, too. Why would a doctor want to see you? Three-day week is far too much for them. And when a consultant tells you that you will have to wait three years for a hip replacement, but that he can do it next week privately for £3,000, we should all be delighted. Privatising the NHS via the back door is working. And the government has also made sure... You are paying approximately £550 per month extra on your mortgage, meaning you won't be able to afford a holiday abroad. You could, however, hire a small dinghy and sail near Dover, pretending to be an illegal (laughs) immigrant, and be sent to Rwanda for your holiday. Or you could book a trip on the broads and see how much sewage they have allowed water companies to pour into our rivers. Instead of going abroad or a trip on one of our many polluted waterways, though, you could tour Britain by car to see how many potholes you can find. (laughs) Why people are complaining about them is a mystery to me. The government has quite rightly reduced the amount of money paid to local councils to repair them in order to put motorists off from driving around the country wearing away the road surface and causing air pollution. The very fact that so many people are on strike means that the government's austerity programme has been a wonderful success. And so I beg the public to stop moaning and vote Conservative at the next general election. We deserve more of the same, I say. (laughs) Other views are also available. Yeah, I'm sure. So now we go on to a slightly different subject. Ministers who bully and blame staff. Martin Dayton from Woodbridge writes... 
Jane Cornwell, wife of John Carey, described the ethos of a civil servant and foreign office official as someone trained and dedicated to be meticulous about everything, who hates inaccuracies, who hates to be late, who double-checks on everything and follows up on everything, who is a public servant, who prepares four bucks if things should, in spite of everybody, everybody's efforts, go wrong. In today's drought of true political leaders, we are appointing unqualified and inadequate politicians to ministerial positions over all our public and state services. The desperate shortcomings of these government ministers and secretaries of state render it impossible for them to work with civil servants who are superior to them in both experience and intellect. And, like all mediocre bosses with an abundance of arrogance, they bully and blame, demoralise and dismiss the very talented and dedicated people who can help them and who have dedicated their lives to public service. And the following letter from Dennis J. Bean of Berg St. Peter Beckles. He says, I must take issue with Don Matthew, who claims in the East Anglian Daily Times of April 24th the new requirement to have photo ID to vote is some kind of Trumpian Tory plot to deny voting rights to the poor. The facts just don't stack up. Firstly, the requirement for photo ID to vote is not a federal requirement in the USA. It is up to individual states to decide. Currently, 36 out of 50 states require photo ID. Currently, 45 out of 47 European countries require a formal ID document to vote. Of the wider OECD nations, 33 out of 37 require photo ID. India and Bangladesh both require photo ID, and there are certainly plenty of poor people there. So the UK government is actually in catch-up mode. Is it really so unreasonable to ask voters to confirm their identity and eligibility prior to allowing them to cast their vote? I accept there are a small number of people who may never have learned to drive, so cannot get a driving licence. A UK passport currently costs £82.50 for 10 years, that's £8.25 per annum, spread over the validity period, and if all else fails, a person can apply for a free voter authority certificate. I seem to recall that it was a certain Mr Anthony Blair, who as Labour PM started the ball rolling on a compulsory ID card scheme, but it was a Conservative-led coalition government who, after 2010, scrapped this project. So John Davis of Bury St Edmunds has a slightly different point of view, and he says we need a fairer voting system. It was interesting to read the letters from Don Matthew, April the 24th, and Jim Mitchell, April the 25th, when they berated the introduction of photo identity at the next election. And I agree with them. Every eligible voter gets a poll card which states you do not need to take this card with you in order to vote. All that needs to be done is to delete the word not, problem solved. Jim Mitchell goes on to say it should be regarded by everyone as a civil duty to vote, so why don't they? Is it because they think it's a waste of time and their vote will have no influence on the election outcome? Last year in the Ipswich Borough Council election, only a third of the borough turned out to vote. Unlike last year, this year every ward in the borough will have candidates representing the four main parties, Conservative, Green, Labour and Liberal Democrat, but the person who you will have to vote for will be chosen for you. 
It is time to seriously consider changing our voting system so that we dump first past the post, F FPTP, and plump for PPPR, party percentage proportional representation, whereby four constituencies are combined to give the voter a choice of candidates and the percentage of seats for each party matches the percentage of votes for each party. With PPPR in the 2022 IBC elections, all of the four main parties listed above would get a seat or more, and over 95% of the voters could say, my vote helped to elect a borough councillor. And from me, a very short letter written by Owen Wilson of Backton, Stowe Market, again on voting ID. Very short, he says... Hooray! I received a registered postal vote for voting. All is forgiven. However, it's strange how silent the Conservatives have been over voting ID, yet the Greens have been helpfully and busily raising issues about this voting debate. And now Jackie Wright from Woodbridge writes, responding to refugee crisis. Perhaps P. Ransby, Remainer's predictions, letters April 25th, is unaware that most refugees and asylum seekers do remain in Europe or in a country neighbouring their own. The number of refugees that find shelter and remain in Europe is 40 times greater than those that seek to come to the UK. In 2022, the UK accepted 23,000 refugees and asylum seekers. The EU accepted 1 million. Germany alone accepted 300,000. In the past 12 months, 8 million refugees from Ukraine have found shelter in Europe. The UK has offered shelter to 45,000. The global refugee crisis requires a global effort. The EU Dublin III Agreement was designed to establish a Europe-wide strategy for orderly and humane management of this crisis. But unfortunately, Brexit removed the UK from the EU and from this agreement and thus it gave immediate licence to traffickers to establish illegal routes to UK, including flotillas of those dangerously small boats. The applications for entry into the UK from desperate refugees or asylum seekers could have been processed in Europe had the UK remained in the EU. Surely our government should now create more efficient processing methods, permit more asylum seekers to fill the vacancies in our job market, and thereby pay tax, and negotiate with France to set up an office there so that small boats are no longer essential. Okay. There is quite a response from our headline regarding the new development, which caused a lot of interest and in response to the headline that I read out at the beginning. Um, so people have commented. Um, uh, the first one is from Susan Wilson. But uh, the news that there are plans for more than 170 apartments on a piece of long empty land in Bury St Edmunds, which was initially earmarked for a food retailer and a pub, has got people very cross. Western Homes has been given the green light from West Suffolk Council for six apartment blocks for 171 homes, a retail unit on the ground floor of one of the blocks and public space with pedestrian and cycle routes of the former gaswork sites in Tafen Road. So the first response to this was Susan Wilson who said, so 138 parking spaces for 171 homes. Concerns were raised that it wasn't enough. Bury St Edmunds Council recommended refusal because there weren't enough play areas or provision for children and didn't meet West Suffolk Council's requirement to intersperse affordable housing throughout the development, 
yet West Suffolk Council still approved. So, more strain on our schools, doctors, dentists, I know that one is a joke, health service, police roads, infrastructure, etc. Now, tell me the people from West Suffolk Council sitting on the board to approve it don't live in Bury St Edmunds. So, another response from Andrew Vernon, who writes, uh, he was also unhappy with the decision. He said... Why don't they continue to ruin the lovely old market town like they already have? West Suffolk Council are a joke. Think about the kids and the bus routes. Oh yeah, they don't care as long as they've got six bed houses and can go away every two months on holiday. My parents and grandparents would be disgusted. Poor Barry St Edmunds, glad I don't live there no more. So Colin Preslin added, if we are going to have more retail and industrial space outside town, we need a decent bus service running, with it operating on Sundays and late into the evening so people can get get used to work, to, can use it to get to work, to get to schools and colleges. Some areas of town don't have a decent public transport now. With more homes going up, the town is going to be gridlocked soon and more often. If the council doesn't get their move on and provide plans and a framework for a decent public transportation system for Barry, and if we stay as we are, it will put people off from coming to Barry to do business, live and leisure activities, because the town will get a reputation that you cannot get around. It seems to me Suffolk County Council still thinks Barry is a small market town and all the money goes to Ipswich, that this needs to change and change quite quickly. And from Barry Peters, the editor of the Berry Free Press. Parents, it's time to rejoice. The scourge of many an afternoon yomp with the children, or indeed grandchildren, could be resolved, thanks to the efforts of a Berry St Edmunds company. Now don't get me wrong, I know the majority of dog owners are fantastic, clean up after their pet fastidiously and take home their poop bags. But there are always those rascals who may not notice their pet has messed the pavement. I call them rascals, but no doubt other words have been used by parents when they find a child sitting in the car with something untoward stuck to the bottom of one shoe. Anything that keeps the smells at bay, along with the possible infections, has to be welcome. And the partnership between West Suffolk Council and a compostable poop bag firm is encouraging. More than half a million bags have been dispensed from numerous stations around the area. Just think how many parents have been helped by that. Such a service needs a champion, and more sponsors are being sought to support the scheme and grow it. We all love dogs. Hopefully this scheme will help owners caught short when their dog is similarly caught short. So now a very pithy remark from Sarah Thompson in Woodbridge, who says, Why fight the nurses? Why has the government wasted huge sums of money on legal action against nurses? Surely the money could be better spent on increasing nurses' pay. And by Jeff Hall, via email, still no action over dental services, says Jeff. I see this poor government has still not responded to the closure of dentists. Suffolk and Norfolk have been hit harder than any other counties. Over 4,000 people cannot get treatment, and over next year, all ages will suffer. I've rung over 20 dentists to try to get in, and had the same answer. Can't do. Full up. Yet still no advice or help from the government. What are we supposed to do? I'll keep trying, 
but know where my vote goes next time. Peter Miller from Westerfield writes, The letter from Graham Day, published on April the 22nd, raised many memories of the Waterside Works Male Voice Choir, with whom my father was conductor between 1950 and 1974. I also remember the concert at Ipswich Hippodrome in 1957. The choir was founded in 1936 for the employees of Ransoms and Rapier and performed in many village halls and church halls. Other male voice choirs, such as London North Eastern Railway MVC and Cranes MVC, gradually disbanded. In 1969, a similar fate was feared for the Waterside Works MVC, but remaining members of the Ipswich Male Voice Choir that had closed joined the Waterside Choir and continued to sing around the county until late 1974. The decline in numbers participating in male voice singing over the years reflects on changes that have occurred in the way we live and also on the alternative forms of entertainment that are now available and competing for our participation. Recent reports have indicated that even some of the great Welsh choirs are finding it difficult to recruit new members and maintain their high standards of performance. And Roger Wellam of Great Saxon writing, I think perhaps with tongue-in-cheek here, says, I was pleased to see the writer of the article on the A14 rebuild clarified that the new reflective road studs were actually cat's eyes. In other parts of the country, signs still refer to cat's eyes. Is our council so woke that it has to rename something because it upsets some little girl who thought they were real cat's eyes? And now my last letter is from Sheila Jeffrey, who's the chairperson of the Bury St Edmunds and Newmarket Fundraising Group. And the appeal she's talking about raised a wonderful £7,499. May I say a huge thank you to everyone who gave so generously to the recent Marie Curie Daffodil Appeal. Thank you also to the many shops, public houses, hairdressers and doctor surgeries too. The grand total raised by the Bury St Edmunds and Newmarket Fundraising Group was £7,499.55. This money will help so many people living with a terminal illness at home to have one-to-one nursing care. It really is an amazing amount, considering the present economic climate. Also, can I say a huge thank you to our local fundraising team and all the wonderful collectors for all your hard work. The daffodil is a symbol of hope, so thank you all so very much. And after a much-loved section of letters, we're returning to our general news. A museum celebrating Thetford's most famous son, Thomas Paine, which has been nearly 60 years in the making, has opened in the hotel where the writer whose work played a part in the American and French revolutions was born. The Thomas Paine Hotel in White Hart Street welcomed more than 200 students and staff from West Suffolk College, Thetford Academy and RAF Lake and Heath's Liberty Tiger School on April the 19th to get a first look at the £70,000 project. The hotel which is built from three cottages, one of which Thomas Paine was born in, now tells the story of the Thetfordian with display panels, QR codes and a giant interactive screen. Hotel owner Gez Chattel said, I'm really pleased with how this has gone today and the look of the museum. Most of the pupils and staff who visited then went to see the Thomas Paine statue in town, 
the Do Leap Sing statue on Button Island and the Ancient House Museum. So to get that many people increasing the footfall in the town just shows the potential this can bring. Gez added that following the completion of the two-year project, which also has been awarded Heritage Lottery funding, he has been contacted by American travel agents and more people from across the Atlantic who want to come to the new attraction. When the town's King Street statue of Thomas Paine was unveiled in 1964, a piece in the New York Times said, The next step, it is hoped by Paine enthusiasts, will turn the author's birthplace into a museum. Guest said it was great to be able to finally give the town, which also celebrates the life of Duleep Singh and the BBC show Dad's Army, something solid about the American founding father, political activist and revolutionary. He said, It may have taken 59 years, but we have managed it. Now, in the hotel where he was born, people will be able to see more on the man from Thetford who really did help to change the world. Born in 1737... Thomas Paine's work includes a political paper, Common Sense, which influenced the American Revolution. He also wrote Rights of Man, which was seen as the defence of the French Revolution. Thomas Paine died on June 8, 1809, aged 72, in New York City. A tribute has been paid by the son of a woman described as R.F. Milton Hall's surrogate grandmother, who met presidents, royals and the first person on the moon. Iris Weimar, who died on April the 2nd at the age of 93, lived in Mildenhall since 1977 and during her time in the base's bulleting accommodation team worked her way up to innkeeping assistant manager. For 40 years, Iris also organised and participated in the Joan Mann Special Sports Day, an event dedicated to bringing people with special needs together with the community. Iris's son James said she took great joy in being a part of it, which is one of the biggest events hosted by the US military in Europe. Iris forged hundreds of friendships there, including all the base's commanders, chaplains and their families, with many staying in contact with her years after they had left. Due to the role, she also met at least two US presidents, Bill Clinton and George Bush, King Charles III, as well as Bob Hope, and astronaut Neil Armstrong. James said... When we were based in Florida, Neil used to come to the house with our dad, who was Neil's sponsor when he visited. Due to being much loved by the base, she was reintroduced to him when he came over. Iris received many awards for her quality of work and her service to the US military. This included an awards presentation in Florida for the best innkeeping service in Europe. Iris attended St John's Church in Beckrow, Mildenhall Methodist Church and the base's church where she had her own dedicated seat. James said, Mum became the surrogate grandmother to many young families at the base. This created a special bond over the years and greatly enhanced the lives of all of them. Iris's funeral on April the 25th at St John's Church saw friends and family, as well as US and RAF base commanders, attend. It was conducted by the Reverend Diane Grano and US Air Force Chaplain Jennifer Ray. Suzette Williams sang, accompanied by organ player Dr Ryan Coetzee, and a military bugle player, Staff Sergeant Morgan Dezel, played the last stand at Iris's internment. About his mum, James said, she was full of energy, enthusiasm, so outgoing and had very high work standards, a rare character and so loved. 
She had a unique skill of being able to talk to anyone, generals, presidents, royalty and the public, all in the same way. Iris leaves James behind daughters, Jamie and Joy, son James and 15 grand and great-grandchildren. A popular bakery in Bury St Edmunds has the recipe for success after gaining national recognition from the Good Food Guide. Worcester's Bakery in Langton Place has been hailed as a local gem in the 2023 Good Food Guide. Its inclusion means it is considered among the best places to eat in Britain. Will Worcester, the bakery's founder, said he was thrilled his business had made it into the guide. He said it was amazing to see them listed as a top food destination alongside colleagues from other top bakeries. Will said, A massive thank you to everyone who nominated us. Making it into the Good Food Guide is a huge boost for us and will drive the team going forward. Our inclusion means we're doing something right and it is a testament to the hard work and dedication of everyone here at Worcester's. It's lovely to work with people who care about our baked goods as much as I do, and I hope that passion comes through the other end. We opened in Bury in 2017, so to earn something so prestigious this early on is a fantastic feeling. It also highlights the continued support of our customers, who can now be assured they are visiting a place known for quality. As long as you strive to do your best, people will keep coming through the door. More f- uh, food now. The newest food columnist for the Berry Free Press has announced she has scooped two accolades at this year's London and South East Prestige Awards. Lillian Hugh, who is based in Culford, has been told she has won the Cookery School of the Year Award for the first time and the event's private Chef of the Year category for the third year running. Lillian's Kitchen, which offers cookery lessons from dim sum to Korean and Thai, a private dining service and bespoke cakes, was started by her in 2017. The Singaporean-born chef said she was overjoyed to hear the news. Lillian added, I'm really thrilled to have won the Cookery School Award on top of the private chef one for the third year running. It is just amazing. Lillian credits her grandmother and mum for inspiring in her the love of food and is very passionate about demystifying Asian cooking. Growing up in Singapore, Lillian helped at her parents' noodle and congee stall, which further drove her decision to join a hospitality school from Switzerland based in Singapore instead of university, like her older sister. After becoming fully trained and teaching at the school for three years, Lillian was headhunted to be catering manager at Raffles, one of the world's most iconic hotels and famous for inventing the Singapore Sling Cocktail. Once she came to England, Lillian lectured at West Suffolk College in the hospitality department. Lillian started her cookery classes at Bury St Edmunds Cricket Club before welcoming people into her home where they now take place. Talking to Barbara Eels in the Berry Free Press in March about her classes, she said, Here we are much more relaxed, and what I love is when the customers think of something and I have the ingredients in the house, I can show them. The chef who took part in the Berry St Edmunds Food and Drink Festival in August gave readers her recipe for tandoori salmon this month in her first article and is also in the process of writing a cookbook as well. The London and South East England Prestige Awards will be held at Gorse Hill Hotel London on August 27th and 28th. Two popular Suffolk beaches have been named among the best in the country. 
Southwold and Aldborough have ranked inside the top 10 best beaches in the country in a poll by which. More than 3,000 people rated the beaches on their features, including the seafront, scenery, accommodation, value for money and peace and quiet. Both Southwold and Aldborough achieved four stars out of five for their respective beaches, while the former notched five stars for its seafront and pier. Aldborough, meanwhile, scored five stars out of five for peace and quiet. Felixstowe came inside the top 50, achieving an overall score of 73%. Further up the coast, Lowestoft was ranked as one of the worst beaches in the country. The beach achieved an overall rating of 59%, while it scored just two stars for its seafront and pier, and two stars for its shopping and amenities. Popular Essex beach Clacton was named the joint worst beach in the country, alongside Skegness in Lincolnshire. Shame. Meanwhile, a technicolour pack of dogs will soon descend on Suffolk, and now the wait is nearly over. In its biggest fundraising event to date, Suffolk Libraries has commissioned some of the county's best creative minds to design dog sculptures, which will soon come together for a big reveal at the Suffolk show. And they won't need any of the poop bags, will they? <laughs> this campaign, the aptly named Pause Activity, P-A-W-S Activity, aims to bring some extra fun and colour to Suffolk, whilst helping the vital work of Suffolk Libraries. Wayne Bavin of Radio Suffolk said that the station was proud to be supporting Suffolk Libraries. Suffolk Libraries is certainly one of the best in the country and does an incredible variety of work in the community, he said. The East Anglian Daily Times is also supporting Suffolk Libraries as media partner. Pause Itivity will officially launch at the Suffolk show on May the 31st. Until then, several of the artists have revealed sneak peek of their designs. Following their grand tour of the county, the dogs will set up home in their own individual libraries. And our editor has added a note, don't forget your local library has a good selection of talking audiobooks and music CDs available. You can phone and request your favourites to be reserved for you. And our lovely editor has also added a note to my next item, saying the warmer weather might have you thinking about days out and about. Mm-hmm. Is there anything better than enjoying a cup of tea and a slice of cake in your favourite tea room? Here are five of the best in Suffolk. The first, Lavenham Vintage Tea Rooms in Marketplace Lavenham. Opened in 2016, this Lavenham Tea Room is well worth a visit. Offering a wide range of traditional food and drinks, the Tea Room was recently awarded prestigious TripAdvisor Award. Number two, Bailey's Two, Coffee and Tea Rooms. 5 Whiting Street, Berry. The tea room offers a variety of tasty treats, aromatic coffees and sandwiches with a twist. Located near the town centre, the cafe is the perfect place to take a break from shopping. Number 3. The Shed. The Shed in Sprawson at 1A High Street. It's offering a unique afternoon tea experience inside its newly installed Anderson Air Raid Shelter. The tea room presents customers with the opportunity to eat afternoon tea in a historically accurate bomb shelter. Owner Leslie Austin has done away with the traditional three-tier afternoon tea stand, instead opting for vintage sandwich and cake tins. And number four, Nutshells by the Sea, 1B Hamilton Road, Felixstowe. 
Not Shells by the Sea was opened by the owners of a cafe that was destroyed in a fire last year. The dog-friendly tea room offers traditional afternoon tea as well as other lunch items. Only a short walk away from the seafront. And finally number five, Ivy and Bond Tea Room, Waterley House, Hall Street, Long Melford. It was opened in memory of a dad of three who passed away after a battle with cancer. Ivy and Bond has proved to be a real hit since opening early this year. Owner Helen Clutterham has plans to take over the building next door to convert it into an ice cream parlour. Organisers on an award-winning Suffolk Woodcrafts Festival say they have been overwhelmed with messages of support as they gear up for its return. Weird and Wonderful Wood is being staged at Hawley Park near Stowmarket on the weekend of May the 13th and 14th. Organisers were delighted earlier this year when the festival was voted East Anglia's Best Festival, as well as taking the Suffolk County Crown at the East Anglian Festivals of the Year Awards. It won an East Anglian Festival Network's EAFN poll, which ran for the first 10 days of 2023, beating Buckfest Music Festival, Cambridgeshire, Cosfest, Essex and Legends of Rock, Yamageddon, 10, Norfolk, to take the top spot. The event is run by Sarah Barker and Sue Taylor. They took over the reins, took over the reins last year from Sarah's mum, Tarby Davenport, MBE, who founded the event in 1994. Sarah said people from all over East Anglia have been expressing their excitement about the forthcoming event. I think people are very excited that Weird and Wonderful Wood is coming back, she said. People are so pleased to be coming back. EAFN has been great and I know that they were very impressed with the festival last year. They have been overjoyed at the reaction since the festival award this year, she added. The response of visitors was just amazing that we were voted the best of over 700 festivals in the region. The name of the festival has grown, she said, and was attracting the very best art and craft woodworkers in the country. This year's two-day event will celebrate some of the finest artists in wood, instrument makers, designers, sculptors and furniture makers and a host of other local craftspeople who will be demonstrating, exhibiting and selling their works. The aim is to inspire, educate and entertain people of all ages and abilities. The event will include arts and crafts, woodworking, demonstrations, free workshops for children and entertainers from all over England. These include stilt walkers, jugglers and acrobats. A music stage will host known artists and talented newcomers. Festival goers can learn a host of other skills including how to play the traditional Irish instrument, the bodrum, how to hula hoop or weave willow. And to bring our news talk recording this week to completion, uh, Sue and I are very pleased to bring you a feature article in uh, in keeping with this weekend's exciting topic, and it's headed Heralding the New Reign with a Colourful Royal Display. Heraldry has been part of England's royal heritage for almost a thousand years. Down the centuries, successive kings and queens have chosen distinctive coats of arms to signify their status and power. And royal heraldry through the ages has been chosen by enthusiasts in Suffolk as a perfect way to celebrate the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. From May the 2nd to the 16th, the cloisters of St Edmundsbury Cathedral will be lined with colourful illustrations in an exhibition staged by Suffolk Heraldry Society. 
The story of the monarchy from the 11th century to the present day will be told through a noble art form that encompasses history, science and genealogy. While the use of symbols to focus ideas goes back almost as far as humanity itself, heraldry instantly brings to mind medieval knights and the age of chivalry. And, said Suffolk Heraldry Society's president, Jerry de Roper, there was a very good reason for that, to avoid being killed by your own side in battle. The whole thing goes back to the days when knights in armour couldn't be recognised, he said, so they painted their arms on their shields so their own people would recognise them, he said. The first recorded mention of a coat of arms in British history was the one presented by Henry I to his new son-in-law, Geoffrey of Anjou, in 1128, although arms consisting of a gold cross and doves on a blue background are attributed to Edward the Confessor, whose reign ended in 1066. Illustrations of the Queen's Beasts, ten heraldic statues including lion, greyhound, griffin and dragon, each supporting a badge or arms of a family associated with the ancestry of Queen Elizabeth II and created for her coronation in 1953, will also feature in the exhibition. Heraldry, with its royal pedigree and ancient traditions, can appear a mysterious, archaic world, far removed from everyday life. But if you take the trouble to look, it is everywhere. Just think of the three lines of England that appear on royal arms from the reign of King Richard the Lionheart at the end of the 12th century. They're also forever associated with England's football teams, with the depictions adapted to resemble lionesses for the women's squad. It pops up in our streets too, on buildings, pub signs and village signs. Probably the most prolific sources are churches, where it often appears to commemorate members of notable families. The language of heraldry does set it apart, though, still based on Norman French, and so precise that it can only be interpreted one way. With colour, red is gules, blue is azure, green is vert, black is sable, and purple is purpure. Metals used as colours are described as ore, which is gold, and argent is silver, but they are often represented as yellow and white. The lines of England are passant, meaning striding, and gardan, which is positioned sideways but turning their heads to face the viewer. Among the work carried out by Suffolk Heraldry Society since it began in 1977 is a comprehensive survey of all the heraldry in the county's 500 Anglican churches. One aim of the society, which is a registered charity, is ensuring these echoes of the past survive through the restoration of heraldry in churches in the county. We find that there is a need for work to be done on painted funeral hatchments, some of which are 200 or 300 years old, but worthy of preservation from the point of view of local history, Jerry explained. We have also recorded what we call street heraldry, which is any heraldic material that can be seen from the roadside, which is held in A5 booklet form. At one time, heraldry was the preserve of the aristocracy, but now this is not the case. Anyone, unless you are a convicted criminal, can apply for a coat of arms. Heraldry, as we recognise it today, is administered by the College of Arms in London. The college consists of the heralds, who are members of the royal household, and supporting staff such as scriveners and researchers. 
It is controlled by the Earl Marshal of England, the Duke of Norfolk. There are three kings of arms. The Garter Principal Kings of Arms is the most senior. Clarence So is responsible for the area south of the River Trent, and Norroy and Ulster take care of the area further north. Anybody wanting to apply for a coat of arms has to apply to the college. That includes individual companies and organisations like councils. They will ask you about your background, achievements and genealogy. And from that they will ask what you would like in your coat of arms, said Jerry. People have no idea what complexities that creates. It will be hard up to, it will be up to the Herald to make sure that what you have chosen isn't in use by somewhere else. As there are fifty thousand coats of arms in this country, the Heralds have their work cut out. The choice of design can cause weeks of research at that college where the records are kept. It's a legal thing. Heralds are the equivalent of solicitors. They all have to be approved by the monarch. All that means it is also expensive. A personal coat of arms costs more than £8,000, double that for a non-profit organisation and treble for a company. West Suffolk has Edward the Confessor's arms at the bottom because the original Abbey of St Edmundsbury was in his charge. East Suffolk has the Ufford family arms and two lions' faces from the de la Poles family. They were the earls and dukes of Suffolk. There is also a Viking ship because of their importance in East Anglia, and a sun because it's the most easterly county in the country where the sun rises first. And now we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmund's News Talk. Uh, Harvey and I have greatly enjoyed reading this to you, and I hope you get as much enjoyment out of it as we have. <laughs> so thanks to our editor especially. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and the Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Sue, Harvey and the other Sue, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>